Uh, if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to take it up and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. Book of 1 Samuel. If you're new to church or new to this church, then uh, we want to let you know that what we do is we uh, take a significant amount of time in our services in order that we might be able to take a look at the Word of God, the Bible. Uh, we believe the Bible to be the inspired Word of God, and so therefore, He, by His Spirit, uses His Word in order to encourage our hearts, to teach us, to, to challenge us. And so each and every week, we open up the Bible. We're so glad that you are here with us. If you don't have a Bible and you would like to follow along, which I'd encourage you to do, uh, you can find a Bible in the pew back in front of you, and you can find the reading this morning on page 213 in that Bible, or you can uh, Google it on your mobile device of choice, and you'll be able to find it that way as well. 1 Samuel chapter 1. We are in a series that we're called Wonder Women. Uh, we uh, untold stories of great faith. There are... Uh, a number of stories of great faith. And indeed, the Bible is chock full of people in their journey of faith with Christ. And, uh, you know, there's people like Abraham or Paul or Jesus. Uh, he's, he's a big one. We like him. Um, but there's also other, other stories that don't often or don't always get told or spent time. And so this morning, we're going to look at a woman by the name. We're going to be introduced to a woman by the name of Hannah. And so we're going to look at that, and that can be found in 1 Samuel chapter 1. But I wonder, I wonder if you've ever found yourself wanting so, something so badly that it's hard for you to take your mind off of it, or it becomes sort of an all-consuming uh, driving force in your life. Has that, have you ever had that experience where you find yourself wanting something and you just, whenever you're sort of daydreaming, your mind starts to go to this, this thing or to this person or to whatever. You, when you go online, you find yourself somehow Googling it and you find yourself thinking about it. You find yourself waking up and you realize that you had to dream about your new house or your car or your new spouse or something. Have you ever found yourself sort of consumed with something? I did, I, I, probably many times over the course of my life, but I remember one time in particular, when I was in high school, I wanted a stereo, I wanted my own stereo, and I wanted it so I could be, uh, so I could put it in my room and I could control the music in my room. I wanted a stereo and that's what I wanted because I wanted to be the man in my room. And if you remember, some of you will remember the stereo speakers, they aren't cool like they are today. They were huge. They were like, they come up to your waist kind of speakers. And on the top of this, I, you know, I spent enough time in the electronic section of Kmart to know exactly what I wanted. And the stereo that I wanted had speakers that were like this high. And at the top, there was a turntable for those of you who are kids. That's for records. Um, you put the records on the top. It spun around with a little needle and it played music. So there was that. And those were sort of on the way out, but it was still cool. And then there was two double cassette tapes and then the radio. That was it. And then the down underneath, there was space to store your cassettes or your, or your, your records if you had them. And this is what I wanted, and I knew exactly what I wanted. The problem was I was 15 and I had no money. Um, the desire was strong, the resources were low, so that meant no stereo until I got a job. So then I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a job. And so I got a job at a, as a dishwasher at Pizza Hut in my hometown. So there was a restaurant, and there was a restaurant Pizza Hut, and I got a job as a dishwasher. It's not a glorious job, in case you were wondering. If you were looking for career options, mm, 
this one, uh, so that, you know, like, so I walk around, I have bus tables, and then you bring this bin full of just leftover nastiness from people's tables, and you take it back there, and then you put it all into the tray, and there's a big sort of tray, and then these industrial dishwashers, have you seen the industrial, where, you know, there's a big handle, and you kind of lift the handle, you, you, you put it, you put the tray in, you put it down, and you push the button, and then it goes to like 2,000 degrees, and then you pull it up, and then you get a facial, because all the steam is like, right? And then you pull it out, and they're just, they're so hot, the plates are, and you're trying to get them out. That was my job. That's what I did. And then there's some people, so some people, decide, I don't know, who does this? They put their gum underneath a plate. I mean, you, you, put, you take your gum out. I understand you got to get rid of your gum. But do you really, under the plate, I wouldn't see it. I put it in there. And then you put it in the dishwasher. You do the thing. It gets all hot. You lift the thing out. You pull it out. And then it's like a spearmint facial. It's like, it's just the most, and you know it was on somebody's mouth. It was, mm. but I digress. All of that was for my stereo. All of that was so that I could have two speakers, a turntable, and it didn't have a microphone. But I wanted it. It was all of that so that I could be the man in my room. And I remember the day when I had enough money that my mom took me to Kmart and I was able to purchase my stereo. And then I also purchased a cassette single. They had these cassettes and there was one song on the one side and you flip it over and there was one song on the other side and only one song was worth listening to. Right, that was the cassette singles, and I and I had my cassette single, and I was in bliss for a day, or two. I I was the man. My heart was, my desire was, my actions were consumed by one thing that I so desired, and Hannah so also understands this, because she has moved by, has a desire for something that derives her thinking, drives her action. But what Hannah wanted was not a stereo. What Hannah wanted was a child, was a child. This is the story that we, that we jump into in 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you have your Bibles there, we're going to look at Hannah's pleading before God for a child. There was a certain man, it says in verse 1, there was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zephite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Peninnah, and Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. So Hannah, we're introduced to Hannah, and these three characters. Hannah has a husband. His name is Elkanah. Elkanah also has another wife whose name is Peninnah. Now, before we go further, I just want to talk to you and speak just a little bit about this idea of having two wives because it seems a little weird, and it is indeed weird. And is the Bible actually teaching that it's okay to have two wives? The answer is no. What, what the Bible is doing, if, if you read your Bible, what you'll find out is there are certain things that the Bible talks about that are descriptive. They're describing the things that, as the world was at that particular time. There are other things that are prescriptive or how God says things ought to go in his world. This is descriptive. It describes the situation that Hannah was in. It's not prescribing it. It's not saying it's a great idea. Actually, we'll find out it was actually a difficult thing. It's not teaching that we should, they, it was okay to have two wives. What they're saying is, at that particular time in human history, this was an accepted practice. You understand that, like for, for instance, King David had multiple wives. It was an accepted practice at that particular time. So there were two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. 
Look what happens as they interact with one another, verse 3. Year after year, they're, they're, so they're both married to this man named Elkanah, and he was, a, as, as best as we can tell, a faithful man to the Lord. Every year, year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests to the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife Peninnah and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her to, in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? You notice immediately the complexity of the family dynamic, don't you? Not hard to see when you, you see having two wives and uh, the husband loved one more than the other, and the one, but the other one was able to have bare children and the other one wasn't. And you see the complexity of this particular situation. That every year, Elkanah would do what he was supposed to do. He would lead his entire family up to Shiloh in order that they might be able to worship to the Lord. And so there they were going to worship to the Lord. And all of a sudden, then there would be fighting and there would be bickering and then there would be chaos. And sometimes that's a lot like your family trying to get to church on a Sunday morning. And here you are trying to worship the Lord and there's all this fighting. And then that, was it. that was his situation too. You're not alone. But there they were on their way up. And Hannah had a particular burden. She had a particular burden, and the burden was of barrenness. Hannah could not have children. And we were told the reason she couldn't have children is because the Lord had closed her womb. But this was a particularly heavy, heavy burden for her to bear. Because in that particular day and age, a woman's identity, self-worth, was wrapped up in her ability to provide children for her husband. Often in an agrarian society where, there was, where everything centered or the, all of life centered around the home, then it was the role of the wife to be able to provide as many kids as she could in order to help the family succeed and help the family survive. And here we have a woman whose identity in the culture is wrapped up in childbearing and she can't bear a child. It's a heavy burden. She's insignificant. She's not important in, in society's eyes. Now, Hannah isn't the first woman to deal with barrenness in the scriptures. Actually, there are several. She's in good company. There is Sarah, Abraham's wife, who was barren for a number of years. There was Rebecca, who was barren for a number of years. Manoah's wife, who ended up being the mother of Samson, was barren. Elizabeth, who became the mother of John the Baptist, all dealt with barrenness. Hannah was barren, and there was nothing she could do about it. They didn't have infertility treatments. They didn't have doctors that she could go see. She longed that she might be able to have a child. Her greatest desire in all of her life was that she might be able to have a child. The greatest heartbreak in her life was because she didn't have a child, and here she is, and there's nothing that she can do about it, and she's dealing with this great burden, taking it through life. And I wonder if some of you in this room aren't barren this morning. I know that some of you are indeed walking through the silent 
dark journey of infertility. Very common in our day. That, that's a silent journey and a silent burden that you carry that colors what you see in all of life. But for others of us, we're in a season of barrenness, but it's, it's taken different forms. Sustained difficulty and challenge at work. Strained relationships at home or with the family. Loneliness, depression, lostness. You feel barren. You feel as if you're in a season of wilderness wandering and yet here you are and it seems as if God isn't answering, has left you alone. There's a pastor and writer and, and, and seminary professor named Dale Ralph Davis and he says this, Hannah shares in the fellowship of barrenness and it is frequently in this fellowship that new chapters in God's history with his people begin, begin with nothing. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he likes to use for his next act. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of Hannah. Hannah is in her situation. She's dealing with the burden of barrenness, and it feels as if God has somehow left her, that God has left her alone to deal with this burden. And he's saying, no, this is actually how God works. When we come to the end of ourselves, when we realize that there's nothing we can do, when we recognize our incapacity or inability to actually help is the very backdrop that God uses to be able to do a new work, to usher in a new stage in your life. He says, this is often the way God works with his people. So if you've come in here this morning and you found yourself in a, in a wilderness wandering, if you've come in here this morning and you found yourself dealing with the burden of, of barrenness in your life right now because of your financial situation, because of your children, because of your work, because of your life, if you found yourself in this space, then take heart because God uses and meets his people in those barren spaces and that becomes the dark backdrop for a brand new day. This is... This is God speaking into Hannah's life, into her difficulty. But Hannah's difficulties don't end with the fact that she's barren. That would have been a burden enough. But she also has what the Bible calls a rival. The writer actually says there's another wife and she's her rival. Interesting language the Bible uses. Because every time they would go up to Shiloh, every time they would go up to worship, every time they would go to, be, to do what they were supposed to do, then this would be the time that Peninnah would use to be able to get at Hannah, to irritate her, to, 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 to sort of rub it in until she would end up in tears year after year. And it's not hard to imagine, is it? Not hard to imagine how this might go. There putting together the, 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 fam, the meal for the family, this great celebration meal, and there are, there's Panina with all of her children, all the children. Oh, do all of you children have the food that you need? Are all of you getting the food that you need? There's so, just so many of you, can hardly, I can hardly keep count of all of you anymore. Mommy, we have all of, you have all of these children, but Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. I'm sorry? I'm sorry, son, you're going to have to speak up. What did you say? I said, Mommy, you, you have all of these children, but Miss Hannah, she, she doesn't have any children. Oh, yes. 
Yes, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. That's right. Well, well Mom, doesn't, doesn't she want to have children? Oh, Miss Hannah? Oh, yes, she wants to have children very much. Wouldn't you say so, Miss Hannah? Wouldn't you say you want to have children? Well, doesn't Daddy want her to have children? Oh, yes, Daddy wants her to have children, but, but you know, she keeps disappointing him. Year after year after year until Hannah ends up in tears over the meal, debating the irritating, the frustration, and Hannah breaks down and sobs. And then her husband, Elkanah, would because he loved Hannah, he would try to soothe her in a situation. Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons, he says. I read that and I have to smile. I have to smile because it's such a guy thing to say. Like, it's such a guy thing to say. And I'm like, I totally would probably say the exact same thing. Like, it's so, like, honey, like, why, why, why are you crying? Like, why, why are you sad? Look at all this great food that we have. Shouldn't you, shouldn't you be happy? Shouldn't we be thankful? I mean, after all, baby, you got me. What else could you want? I mean, that's what he says. <laughs> you, you, oh, I know you're sad about not having, but don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? I mean, come on, baby. Look, at, look you're just not seeing this, the right perspective. I mean, that's totally, what he, that's totally what he's saying. And I look at this and I'm like, <laughs> but all of this all rolled up together finally brings Hannah to the breaking point and drove Hannah into the very presence of God, into the very presence of the heavenly father. In verse 9, once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. And now Eli was the priest sitting in on his chair and by the doorpost of the Lord's house. And in deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Notice the freedom that she has in the very presence of God. She comes into the presence of God with the burden and bitterness of soul and she cries out to Yahweh. She cries out to the God of the heavens. She cries out to God Almighty. She calls out to the God of all, the cosmic creator. She calls out to the sovereign over all things. She calls out to the mighty, the mighty power beyond measure. She calls out to God and she has the audacity to think that the broken heart of a woman in the hill country of Ephraim mattered to this God, to almighty God, and she comes into his presence and she pours out her soul to him. So much so the sobs, if you, she falls down, it's as if her shoulders are shaking and he says that her mouth is moving, but there are no words coming out. That's what, it, that's what we have here in verse 12. She kept on praying to the Lord, and Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, but her lips were moving, and her voice was not heard. Eli thought that she was drunk, and he said to her, How long will you stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, replied Hannah. I am a woman in deep trouble, deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. 
Hannah was so stricken with grief that it looked as if she might be drunk. She was so overwhelmed with her grief, so bitter and barren in her, with her barrenness. You know, sometimes though, tears themselves constitute prayer before the Lord because the Lord hears the sound of the weeping of his children. Sometimes even our tears are our prayers before Almighty God. She prays, there is such great freedom that Hannah knows in God's presence. She comes with her heavy burden and bitterness and through many, many tears and out of great grief and despair, she pours out her heart because the God of the Bible allows and even invites her into his presence. Do you know that the God of the Bible allows and invites you to pour out your soul to him? Do you know that at a very practical level? See, I, I know that, but I struggle. I know it intellectually. I know that I can pour out my heart to God, but I have this sort of bizarre uh, thing. I, there, are, there are, look, there are third world problems that God has to deal with, not my first world problems. Not, God is, there are people who are dealing with cancer. There are people who are dealing with death of a loved one. And here I am whining about my, my hangnail. I don't know do I need to bring that to the Lord. But you know what? Over the course of time, it's all of these little things that add up to a great burden. And I find myself walking through life carrying on my shoulders this burden that I was never meant to carry. And the reason is because I have a distorted view of my heavenly father that I need to, that he allows me and invites me into his presence to pour out my soul to him. And instead, in arrogance, I think as if I can walk and handle it all on my own. Silly arrogance. I remember as a kid, in the 70s and early 80s is going, growing up in the church and the church had terrible orange carpet and orange pews to match and the organ was loud and you know and we there with my parents every week going to church and sometimes I remember, and I remember the guy you know in the suit and waving his arms sort of goading us to sing and sing on to the praises it's fine but I do remember you know that old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? You know that song? What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and grief to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to the Lord in prayer the burdens that I carry, the peace that I forfeit, the, and we do, because we fail to have the freedom of openness before our Heavenly Father like Hannah did in these moments. Oh, friends, don't carry it. Go to him. Go to him and leave it there. That's what Hannah did. And Eli sends her on her way and says, may, the, may, may God go with you. And so she did, and she left. And then the next, and then it says that then the burden was lifted and she, and she was no longer downcast. And then the next morning they came and they worshiped and then they went home. And then the Lord says, the Lord remembered her and gave her a son. And the son's name, she named him Samuel because she said, because I asked the Lord for him. Because I asked the Lord for him. So Hannah receives the, the very desire of her heart which is a son and then but she had made a promise she had made a promise to God that if God gave her this son that she would give him to the Lord 
So Hannah gives 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 22 through 20, or 21 through 28. Hannah had promised that if God were to give her a son, that she would then give that son to the Lord for the Lord's service. So she has a child, the very things that she's been longing for. She is now being able to hold this child against her chest. She's been able to kiss her son on the forehead. She's been able to smell what it's like to have a newborn with her and all of the glory and all of the joy of motherhood that she's been longing for. Do you ever think that maybe, just maybe, she wished that she didn't make the promise? Do you ever think that maybe she just thought there, she says, well, maybe I, maybe I won't give him back to the Lord. Maybe I'll just hold on to him for a little while longer. I mean, could you blame her if she did? I wouldn't blame her because this is the very thing she's been so longing for. And yet here she is with this promise that she made. And I think even Elkanah, her husband, wasn't sure because the time had come for them to go back up to Shiloh and he was leading his family. And then she says, no, you go on without me. The time will come when the child is weaned and then, and then I'll, I'll go. He says, okay, you do what you think is best, but, but remember. And then the time has come. The child reaches about three years of age, which is about the weaning time. In verse 24, after he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with three-year-old bull, an ephah, a flower, and a, a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And when the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. And now I give, I give him to the Lord. For his whole life will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Hannah is a woman of integrity. Hannah is a woman of faith. And she took her son to the temple in Shiloh and gave him over to Eli. Does this sound a bit odd? A three-year-old. I mean, in our day and age, in our culture, it just strikes my ears, and I think maybe yours, as just being so strange in a day where we have travel baseball and travel soccer and travel football and travel lacrosse and travel everything, in a day where we lift our children up and, they, they, and we find our lives swirling around our children, to be able to look at her with three years old and to give her child, three-year-old, over to this priest at the temple, is it not odd? Is it not strange activity? <laughs> Of course, she wasn't giving her child to Eli. She was giving her son to the Lord. And that's exactly what every Christian parent and grandparent must do. Every Christian parent and grandparent, if they're thinking biblically, if they're thinking rightly, must give their children... To we have the mis mistaken notion that the safest thing for our children is for us to hold on to them. The safest thing is for us to keep them in the confines of our home. The safest thing for them is to actually, for us to be able to hold on to them and be with them for as long as we possibly can. But the safest thing is actually to give them into the hands 
of the sovereign God of all of the universe. Every so often, uh, my wife will share with me things that she reads, and she, she has this one book that she's gone to time and time again called The Bathtub is Overflowing, But I Feel Drained. It's by a woman by the name of Lisa Turkist. Maybe you, you've heard of her. But Lisa, in her book, she, she shares about her own journey, that when she was in early teens, her mom became pregnant uh, and, and delivered a, a sister named Haley. And Haley uh, ended up having a liver transplant when she was only like 16 months old. And then as a result of complications after the surgery, then Haley died and they lost her sister. And then she writes, I was certain that after my family had walked through a tragedy of this magnitude, it could never happen again. But when my Ashley was only six weeks old, she became gravely ill. My husband and I heard words from the doctor that no parent ever wants to hear. We aren't sure that she can make it through the surgery. You have five minutes to tell her goodbye. Though my voice was paralyzed and silent, my soul was screaming, no, you can't take her. I will not let you take her. How do you tell a lifetime of dreams all wrapped up in one child goodbye? As they wheeled her away, I collapsed into my husband's arms. He gently led me out to the parking lot of the hospital. Outside, he cupped my face in his hands and asked me who Ashley really belonged to. Whose child is she? With each question, I kept saying, she's my child. Through his own tears, he kept asking the same questions until I finally answered him with the truth. She is God's child. That's right. She is God's child. He gave her to us, and if he chooses, he might take her. But whether he leaves or takes her, we, are to, we have to stand here today and say we love him no matter what. We are saying we love, we're not saying that we love what he might allow to happen, but we must love God for who he is, not for what he does. I knew Art was right, but I could not stand the thought of losing my daughter. At the same time, I couldn't stand the thought of letting my soul become vulnerable to walking away from God if his answer was no. I had walked away from God when I lost Haley, and it was the darkest time of my life. I could not do that again. So in the middle of our tears and pain, Art and I mentally lifted up our daughter and released her back to God. Through my though my tears did not cease, the panic in my heart did. I felt the most amazing peace wash over me and fill every hurting crevice of my soul. Ashley's crisis ended differently than Haley's. God answers, God, God's answer was to leave her with us, and she was healed. Why God spared Ashley and take Haley, I'll never know. But, mother, but the motherhood lesson I learned that day in the parking lot was to, would stay with me forever. When I fear for my children, I have to relive this exercise. I have to go back to the parking lot and lift my children up to God. I have to state that they are his first and foremost. I have to proclaim my love for God no matter what. Yes, I asked them to be kept safe. And yes, I believe in the power and provision of prayer. But I have to realize that I cannot control my children's safety, not by my prayers, not by my worries, and certainly not by my fears. 
I wonder if some of us need to go to the parking lot this morning. If we need to again place our children and grandchildren in the very safest place that is absolutely possible, which is in the very presence of Almighty God. And we need to just lift them up this morning. As Hannah did. And she gives her son over to the Lord. Hannah pleads, Hannah gives, and finally Hannah praises. First Samuel chapter 2. She praises through prayer. There's a prayer there, and it, it breaks down into three different sections, if you like, and of her praise. She praises God for salvation, for the deliverance that he gave to her through the giving her of a child. Look at what, look at what she says. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. She is praising God because God saw her in her situation. God saw her when in her pleaded. God remembered her. She was delivered from her barrenness. She was delivered from her rival. And she knows that God heard her in her crisis. And so she's thanking him and praising him because of God's salvation. And then she continues. And the way in which God had delivered Hannah is the way in which God does what he does. Verse 4, she says, The bows of the warriors are broken, and those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the, for the foundations of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. She says, this is how God works in our world. This is how God worked in my life, and this is how God works. What God had done in, in Hannah's life is the typical way that God works in the world. Hannah says, I was ready to fall, but God gave me strength. I was barren, but God made me fruitful. I was poor, but God gave, made me rich. But it's no surprise, because that's just God being God. Why are you surprised by this? Because this is the very God that we serve. This is the way God had worked in my life, and this is how God works, because he is the very God of the Bible, because he's the very God of the universe. He's just God being God, just doing God stuff. Why are we surprised at this? Don't be surprised. This is how God works, she says. God worked in my life, because this is the God that we serve. And finally, she says, Hannah extends her thinking even further and says, that this is what God will do in the future. Verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the, in the place of darkness. 
It is not by the strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his kings and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is what God will do in the future. This is what God did for me, she says. And this is and this no surprise because it's just God being God. But And therefore, this is what God will do for those who are his faithful people. She praises him because he will shatter his opponents. God will bring justice and judge the ends of the earth. God will deliver through his anointed one. She thought it was going to be the king, but God did indeed deliver. But it was through a servant king whose name was Jesus. And he came and lived the perfect life and on the cross he died the sacrificial death that dealt with all of the sins of all of humanity for all of time and on the third day he rose again conquering death and sin and hell and because of the anointed word the the anointed son of God that came and was sacrificed and raised we can know that all of his promises will come true because that's just God doing God stuff it's just God being God it's just God being faithful to all that he promised he would because he's going to save his people and that is the God that she praises because of the journey from barrenness to fruitfulness to sacrifice and says this is all for God and this is the God that we serve and you need to know this and believer you need to know this well that every single time God delivers you from the muck and mire of your life Every single time God takes your foot and sets it on the firm footing and sets it on the rock, every single time, that is a sample, that is an appetizer, that is a foretaste, that is a down payment on what God will ultimately do in the end. Do you understand that? You need to know this in your journey. You need to know this in your life. When you see God at work, it is just an appetizer. It is a foretaste to the completed work that he will one day do when he returns. Recently, I was in a conversation with a friend and had been going through a really difficult time. Just, uh, just, uh, it just affected his whole entire outlook on life and just the challenges that he's been going through. And he was sharing with me as I was asked him, how, how are things going? And he's, uh, you know, he says, I have to tell you, just sort of out of nowhere, I, was, I had a, a guy come up to me and say, well, I heard that you were going through this difficulty. And I want you to know I have a friend who's a, they, they're a specialty. They're a specialist in that area. Would you want to have a meeting with them? And he just stands there and says, it was a God thing. It was, I didn't know where to go. I had nowhere else to go. And yet God just brought this person right into my path. Please, friends, do not demean or despise the seemingly small deliverances and salvation of, that God does on your life. The eyes of faith is being able to see the softness and the little small ways that God is at work in your life to be reminded of the significant thing that he will do in the end. Don't despise when he gives you clues, when he gives you small, clear evidence that he's at work or when he speaks in that small, still voice in your heart, but rather take heart because he says, I'm working, because I'm I'm still at work with you. I have not left you alone. And one day I will return and make all things right. Well, praise be to God, this God that Hannah praises and that we do as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these moments.
that we can be reminded of your truth, that you are a God who saves because that's what you do. And you are a God who will make right all of your promises in Christ. And so, Father, will you help encourage our hearts even this day? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.